Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Johallam. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider why exactly do we feel so shattered when someone we love leaves us? What's the science behind what happens to us physically during heartbreak? And why do some of us, at least, stop behaving rationally? It has been a good 30 years since my heart was last broken, thank God. But I remember the days after the breakup so vividly, you know, sitting in my best friend's college dorm room. She had an enormous circular chair with this all-encompassing round cushion that I loved. And I sat in it and I wept and wept and wept. She sat on the bed nearby and periodically gently reminded me that she and I both knew, in fact, the whole world knew, that this breakup was for the best. And I did know that, but I still felt like I was disintegrating. I don't think I've ever felt as foreign to myself as I did then. So when I saw that acclaimed science writer Florence Williams recently wrote a book about the science behind heartbreak, I got very excited. And I know we were both thrilled when she accepted our invitation to come and talk with us about the book, which is called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Absolutely. Heartbreak is in some ways so familiar. We've all gone through it or helped someone through it or both. We've read novels about it. We've watched movies and TV shows. But I don't know of any other accessible and engaging book about the science of what's happening to our bodies during this kind of crisis and what steps might actually make us feel better. It was fascinating to get to talk with Florence about it, and I'm eager to share the conversation with all of you. But first, a little more about Florence. Her first book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, why didn't we interview her about that? I don't know. I didn't know about her first book. It sounds fantastic. I know. Her first book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Science and Technology and was named a notable book by the New York Times. She's also the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Her freelance writing has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, and many other outlets. And she's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine. We started our conversation with Florence by asking about the events in her own life that set her on the path to writing Heartbreak. Take a listen. I feel some reluctance to ask you about your heartbreak, particularly as our very first question, because it was so painful for you to go through. But it is important background for this fascinating and helpful book that you've written. It is. And I did write a whole book about it. Right, so. right, right, <laughs> right. So please tell us how your heart got broken. Well, I met the man who would be my husband, become my husband when I was 18. I was actually my first day of college. And we dated for seven years. And then we got married. We were married for 25 years. There was a lot of love in that marriage. And actually, for most of that time, it was pretty great. But after 25 years, he basically said he wanted out. There were some, you know, various events that led to that. But basically, you know, it, it happened very slowly. And then at the end, it happened sort of quickly. And it just wasn't the outcome that I wanted. 
I wanted to try to work things out. You know, I really loved our life together. You know, I loved him. I really thought we could you know, sort of work this out. And we had two kids and just a life that I was very attached to. And so his wanting to leave that, you know, and sort of start over again and look for love elsewhere, you know, was incredibly disorienting. It was painful. You know, there was rejection sort of layered upon grief, you know, layered upon this disorientation. I mean, everything was turned upside down. What was it that caused you to realize at some point during this horrible experience, you know what, this needs to be a book? Well, um, I am a journalist. I had written two books before. I had been used to writing in the first person in my journalism for decades, actually. I was at a conference in Aspen, and I was giving a talk there. There was someone else giving a talk there, uh, a biological anthropologist, Helen Fisher, who is well known for writing a lot about sort of the science of falling in love. You know, I just reached out to her. I said, hey, you know, can I come talk to you? I'm, I, I, you know, my 25-year my marriage is just split up. And she said, sure, sweetie, come on over. And she was so just welcoming and maternal. But beyond that, she had really interesting things to say about what was happening in my brain. And she said, I can tell you why you're losing weight. I can tell you why, you know, you feel, you know, like you're going to die, why you feel like you've been abandoned. I can tell you what's going on in your brain. And I just... I thought that was so interesting. And I didn't feel like people had really spent much time, you know, in the literature sort of talking about the science of what happens on the other side of love. I'm happy you brought up Helen Fisher because we were planning to ask you about her a little later, but since she's come up now, might as well talk about her now. She argues, and I'm quoting her now, love isn't an emotion. It's a survival drive mediated by our neurochemical reward system. Intense romantic love and feelings of attachment evolve so that you can send your DNA on into tomorrow. Can you give us a basic sense of some of the brain science that supports this unromantic view of love? <laughs> sure. I mean, she, she says it's a drive because the parts of our brains that, you know, respond to um, love basically are sit very close to the parts of our brains that are wired for thirst <laughs> and hunger. Um, and so that's why she says that we're sort of wired to feel like our very survival is at stake. We do, in fact, feel imperiled if we're not part of a kin group, if we don't feel safety in numbers, you know, as human mammals, that kind of safety is very important to us. It doesn't necessarily have to be romantic safety, but if that's how we're used to sort of living our attached lives, you know, with a partner, when they suddenly disappear, our nervous system, our sort of deeply evolved animal nature feels like we've been abandoned. And that's a very frightening place to be. We feel like we're maybe more likely to get attacked, more likely to hurt ourselves. No one's there to sort of protect us or keep us safe. That's why our nervous systems really kick in and cause inflammation, you know, throughout our body. I talk a lot about, you know, what this kind of heartbreak means for our cells even and our immune systems. And it's really because of that inflammation that is trying to prepare us in some ways for actually getting injured. Yeah, I mean, we tend to think of heartbreak as a metaphor, but it can actually be literal. Can you tell us the story of Emma, the friend of a friend you interviewed? And can you tell us about the condition that she suffered from, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy? 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. We tend to think of heartbreak as a metaphor, but we now know that there's kind of a, a subset of heart failure that is not caused by a blockage of an artery, you know, as most of them are, but that's caused by this flood of intense hormones that are responding to emotion. So after grief, um, in some cases it's been documented after our favorite soccer team loses the World Cup. There have been a few cases in the literature of men who are so overcome by emotion that uh, adrenaline floods receptors on the heart. The left ventricle kind of balloons out in this weird way. Um, And it stops being able to sort of efficiently pump blood. So people do present as though they're having a heart attack. In some cases, it actually is fatal or it can predispose them to heart conditions later on. But anyway, I found this friend of a friend and I ended up you know, talking to her for hours and hours in which she unfolded the story of um, being in love. She was quite young at the time, I think 41 years old. She was planning to have a baby, you know, and get married to this man she'd been involved with for a number of years. It, it turns out he was cheating on her. They broke up. He took up with someone else, kind of moved down the street, <laughs> and she would drive by. And, and then at one point, she actually saw her furniture being like unloaded from his house onto a moving truck. And, you know, it was just kind of one just horrible blow, really, after another. And the night after she saw this moving truck, she went back to her house and she felt her chest seize up. She really thought she was going to die. You know, she ended up on the floor. A coworker found her the next morning and she went to the hospital and uh, it turns out she'd had this Takotsubo incident. Neurogeneticist Stephen Cole has done some fascinating research into how loneliness and our connection to social support can affect our physical health. Can you tell us a little bit about his work? Yeah, I was so fascinated by his work. I had never heard it sort of put this way before, that our cells actually listen for loneliness. I mean, a lot of people had noticed that people who describe themselves as lonely have a higher incidence of disease, higher incidence of death. They die younger. He had particularly studied um, men with HIV and how quickly they progressed to AIDS and to death. And there was a real difference in sort of how they described their social state. So he decided to actually sort of drill down and figure out if he could find some transcription factors in our cells, particularly in our white blood cells, a critical part of our immune system, that change their gene expression, depending on whether we feel lonely or not, whether we feel supported and have a lot of social support. I think we know that stress causes changes in our immune system, but he really sort of drilled down and identified this subset of transcription factors, you know, in our genome that change according to loneliness. And then I said, well, can we test my blood? And he said, oh, sure. I've actually never tested the blood of anyone who's in the middle of heartbreak. Come on over to my lab at UCLA. We'll test your blood. And then, you know, we decided to keep testing it at various time points post the breakup. I tried, you know, various interventions. I did all these things to try to feel better from my heartbreak. And then we would test my blood again and see if anything was improving. And that became kind of, I think, kind of the mainframe, really, of the book. Do we know why some of us are more susceptible to collapse or real physical decline as a result of heartbreak than others? We do know that about 15% of people do not really recover from heartbreak or from the death of a spouse. They seem to sort of, you know, not 
let go. They seem to keep replaying the relationship over and over again in their minds. They have a hard time kind of moving on, really, and functioning. They may be, in fact, the subset that's driving the rates of early death in divorced people, which is also the case. Unfortunately, about 26% increased risk of early death among people who are divorced. But we do know that after a traumatic event, some people are more resilient than others. And part of that may be determined by you know earlier traumas. Traumas can be cumulative. Mm-hmm. People who experience childhood traumas or adverse events you know, seem to have overall worse health outcomes in general, including emotional ones and psychological ones as they go through the life cycle. I think some people, you know, are maybe better at not ruminating on their pain. They're better at kind of being forward looking. Maybe they're more optimistic. Maybe they're more extroverted. Maybe they're less neurotic. You know, all of these kind of personality traits seem to also factor in. And I guess this goes back to to Stephen Cole's Research. Can you say just a tiny bit more about the AIDS study that he did? Because the social component, exactly what he meant by that is really interesting, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think he he did several studies where he had these questionnaires and then he compared that to these stored blood samples, looking at these transcription factors. There were two things that really stood out. And by the way, these, you know, these samples were taken from men, uh, I think, you know, in the 80s or early 90s. And so a lot of the men were still in the closet. They hadn't Mm -hmm. come out publicly as being gay. And it was the closeted men who had worse health outcomes. They were holding the secret, you know, that they weren't able to get support for. And they also just in general had less social support. And those are the ones who progressed to the disease state and to death earlier. One thing that makes heartbreak so hard is that the bodies of couples actually sync up. What does that mean? And what does research show about it? I was so interested by that because when my husband suddenly left, you know, after kind of sleeping next to me for, you know, 32 years, um, you see these metaphors and they seemed very apt to me, kind of like you're missing a limb Mm -hmm. or like you're set adrift in the ocean. You feel like a part of yourself is sort of gone and you're suddenly very, very alone. And part of that harkens back to what's going on with our nervous systems. Because when we live with other people, so many parts of our brains sync up, our brain waves sync up, our cortisol levels sync up so that, you know, couples who are married tend to have kind of similar cortisol levels in the morning and throughout the day. If they separate for a weekend or for a work trip or something like that, the cortisol levels get kind of wonky. And that's where you really may feel like you're missing someone. Interestingly, after a breakup, we often crave the person we've broken up with. Even if it's someone, you know, we we had a huge falling out with, someone who treated us badly, we know cognitively or intellectually that we're better off without this person. Our bodies still miss them because our nervous systems are so lined up. It takes about three months, I think, for you to stop that feeling of missing. So someone once told me, if you do break up with someone, give it three months before you get back together. Hmm. Because in those three months, it may be just sort of those body cravings, you know, that nervous system craving speaking up. And you need to kind of get past that before it really makes sense to get back together. I want to ask a question that you might have already answered, but just in case, I'm going to ask it anyway. So as part of her research, Helen Fisher and her colleagues studied people who had recently been dumped. I'm going to read what you wrote about these people. 
the subjects thought about their rejecting beloveds for a full 85% of their waking hours. They also acted pretty nuts, reporting, quote, lack of emotion control on a regular basis since the initial breakup, in all cases occurring regularly for weeks or months. This included inappropriate phoning, writing, or emailing, pleading for reconciliation, sobbing for hours, drinking too much, and or making dramatic entrances and exits into the rejecter's home, place of work, or social space to express anger, despair, or passionate love. I'm laughing a little bit because I so relate to this. <laughs> I have done some of this. <laughs> I mean, and over someone I knew full well was entirely wrong for me. So my question for you is, what the hell? <laughs> like, why what do we do this? Yeah, I know. It, it is really embarrassing. Why do, <laughs> why do we act so embarrassingly badly? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it really gets to the crux of kind of the rejection piece. There's nothing like rejection to make us feel just miserable and terrible. We're so, as humans, we're just so primed to care about what other people think about us because of the hierarchy in those sort of, you know, primate groups that we evolved from. Where you stand in that social group really determines sometimes your survival and your success, right? And so we are just super, super sensitive to any kind of slights. One of the things that happens when we're so incredibly hurt is that our frontal cortex, you know, kind of stops working the seat of our judgment. We lose control over our impulses. We get very carried away by those kind of deeper brain emotions. We're filled with rage, with just this feeling of, ah, oh, you know, we don't deserve that. Or how do I get them back? There's sort of desperation that kicks in. And actually, it does look like sometimes men and women, um, behave a little bit differently in response to this. Women may sometimes do more self-destructive behaviors, whereas men can turn violent. You know, they really can take revenge against their partners. Your book is a treasure trove of fascinating scientific information, most of it about heartbreak and some of it heartbreak adjacent. Can we talk for a second about the creaking bridge study with the Comely research assistant in the middle of two bridges? Because it's just one fun example. In that study, researchers uh, surveyed people who were walking across two different kinds of bridges. One was a, a really creaky, rickety bridge dangling over kind of a rapid in a fast moving river. It's kind of a scary bridge. And the other one was this very solid, big bridge over a slow-moving river, like no big deal. In each study, a very sort of, as you said, comely or attractive research assistant, a woman would stand you know, in the middle of the bridge with her clipboard. And whenever there was a single man or a man alone walking across the bridge, she would say, hey, excuse me, do you mind if I'm doing a research project? Can I ask you some questions? And, and of course, the study was assuming that everyone was heterosexual. Um, the study was a long time ago. Um, and found that um, the research subjects were much more likely to want to give the research assistant their phone number <laughs> and want to follow up with this pretty research assistant if they were standing on the scary bridge, on the rickety bridge. And the theory of the researchers is that there's something about feeling like you're in a kind of 
risky situation where there's like a little bit of element of, you know, your fear system kind mm-hmm. of stimulating you, kicking in, that also kind of triggers feelings of love. So mm-hmm. that may be why, you know, people fall in love, right? When they're in the military or when they're skiing or on an adventure race course or on a biking trip or going to a scary movie. Scary movies are very popular for date night. One step you chose as you struggled to recover was taking psychedelics. Why? You know, what was it like and was it useful? Well, I spent quite a bit of time in the book talking about the power of awe, A-W-E. At one point early on, I met with a psychologist who said, we think that the people who are the most resilient out of heartbreak or other traumatic life events are people who are open as a personality trait, people who are open to beauty, open to awe, actually, specifically. People who get goosebumps, for example, um, when they hear a symphony or when they see a, a beautiful piece of artwork or read a poem. And she said, beyond that, we actually think you can move the needle on that personality trait. It's one of the few personality traits you can sort of change. You can teach yourself to become more open to beauty. And I thought, okay, that's that's my plan. That's gonna be what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I met with a psychologist. Um, his name's Dacher Keltner. Um, he's kind of the awe dude at the <laughs> University of California, Berkeley. And I said, look, you know, should I try mushrooms? Should I try psychedelics? Is that going to kind of shortcut me into awe? And he said, definitely. <laughs> you definitely should try it. I had never done that before. But I felt like I needed some kind of desperate measures. I needed really big technicolor awe. And so I went for it. And what was it like and was it useful? You know, it was for me, and it's going to be different for other people. You know, I'm careful about kind of suggesting this for everyone. Um, There are a lot of factors that go into it, including, you know, if you're on other medications and what your various health conditions are and so on. For me, it was actually very helpful. I did experience awe. I had a sort of, quote, mystical experience. And I know this because I took a questionnaire (laughs) in in mystical experiences. Um, Under the influence of psilocybin, I definitely felt that I was part of the universe. I felt like we were all connected. I felt this sort of massive wave of love. I felt like I was kind of flying high above the earth. You know, I pictured myself as a moon at one point. I saw sardines in the sky that that struck me as as kind of like angels, as a sort of secular version of religion. It was it was a really powerful experience. We know from some of the science, you know, looking at psychedelics and, for example, people who are undergoing terminal illness, that under the influence of these substances, they feel less afraid, and that's what happened to me. I felt. You know, fear had been driving so much of my anxiety in the wake of my divorce and driving the immune system problems that I was having. Having this experience and feeling less afraid of my future was, to me, very, very powerful and very helpful. And and actually, that effect has lasted. You know, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be okay. What advice would you give if someone recently dumped and thoroughly heartbroken were to come to you now and say, I am so unhappy, I need to feel better, what should I do? The way I have divided my kind of advice is in three separate buckets. The first one is is just calming your nervous system because you're basically in a state of fight or flight after this happens. That's why we lose weight. You know, that's why we feel so anxious. 
That's why we feel so stressed out. And that's going to look different for different people, how you find calm. For me, it was through exercise and walking and being in nature and being with my friends, you know, through breathing, you know, all that kind of stuff. But really, you have to take that stuff seriously. You have to work at it. It's kind of a practice, right? Meditation and so on. The second piece is connection, you know, finding connection through other people who've gone through this experience, really reaching out to people, sharing your vulnerability, admitting that you're having a hard time, admitting that these are really big feelings, something that we're not necessarily conditioned to be very good at in our culture. You know, just connecting to people, to your loved ones, even to nature. And then the third piece, which I think is is a little bit unexpected, is purpose. Purpose is this kind of interesting antidote for loneliness and heartbreak. And we know that because of the blood work studies that uh, Dr. Cole is doing at UCLA, where there have been experiments showing that people who find purpose or who have more purpose do have a healthier set of white blood cells. So that's all worth spending a lot of time to try to dig out and find. I feel the need to reiterate that Florence's book is full of fascinating information. We couldn't begin to cover it in one conversation. I loved reading, for example, about the testing of her blood that Dr. Cole did at various stages of her experience, what changed over time, and the steps that they thought likely accounted for the changes. There are intriguing details scattered throughout, too, like the fact that divorced men tend to have worse health outcomes after divorce if they don't remarry. Women, on the other hand, are more likely to do fine on their own. If they're relatively secure financially, which unfortunately is a big if, then divorced women fare better than divorced men. The book raises interesting questions, too, like why can't we be more patient and supportive on a societal level when somebody's undergoing heartbreak? I mean, just look at some of the terminology. We say someone's gotten dumped. That's really not kind, although... To be fair, it can be an accurate reflection of how it feels to be broken up with. (laughs) But we're pretty quick to default to a, you know, get over it, time to move on kind of mentality. Even though we all know from anecdotal and personal experiences that there's a healing process that has to happen and that takes time. That reality is confirmed by the science as Florence's work shows. Just reclaiming an independent body rhythm takes three months. So what approaches can we all take to be more helpful in addition to telling friends to wait at least three months before getting back together with their exes? That's just one series of questions I have. My overall point is that Florence has written a book that's informative, engaging, and thought-provoking about a topic of relevance to virtually everyone. That's quite an accomplishment. Indeed it is. And with that, I'm going to say that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Florence at florencewilliams.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and-